today marks the 40th sermon in this series on Revelation. <clears throat> 40 sermons. <laughs> uh, God bless you people. Um, and with it, we venture into what is the final vision of the book, the vision of the new heaven and the new earth. Before we begin this final vision and the last four messages in the book of Revelation, I need to remind you that this is still a vision. Utilizing symbolic imagery to represent theological truths. It therefore demands that we continue to interpret it as such, as we've mentioned before, not with a wooden literalism, as I've said, not literally, but literarily. That is, within the literary genre in which it was written and in which John intended for us to interpret it. That genre known as apocalyptic literature. It is a genre of literature that utilizes highly symbolic images to represent theological truths. This is still a vision, and it's still not videotape. In other words, by the time we finish this section at the end of chapter 22, we still won't know precise details regarding what the eternal state will look like, but we will know many theological truths regarding what the eternal state will be. At the end of this vision, at the end of the next four weeks, we will still have to agree with the Apostle Paul who said in 1 Corinthians 2.9, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what has never entered into the heart of man to imagine, this God has in store for those who love Him. What God has in store for those who love Him will, at the end of these four weeks, still remain a mystery. Unseen, unheard, unimagined by men. But what this vision makes absolutely clear is that whatever it will be, it will be unspeakably glorious. The final vision of Revelation begins with this declaration. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. This verse and much of what follows in verses 1-5 to is drawn from an Old Testament passage, as is most of the book of Revelation. This one comes from Isaiah 65, verses 17-19, through 19, where the Lord said through His prophet, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever." in that which I create. Let's stop there for a second. Whatever is going on in your life at this particular moment that you brought in this morning, if your hope is in Christ and in the inheritance which He purchased for you at the cross, you will be glad and rejoice forever in what He creates. For behold... I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. 
No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. So this hope of a new heaven and a new earth in which the curse of sin is removed from both the covenant people and from all of creation, this hope of a new heaven and a new earth where God dwells in the midst of His people in boundless and and ever-increasing joy is not a new hope for the Apostle John. It's not as if this idea just emerges on the pages of Revelation 21 and 22. It had been the hope of the faithful for at least the past 800 years going back to the time of Isaiah. In fact, I would argue that the hope of the new heaven and the new earth goes back even further, much further than that, back to the time of Abraham, who, according to the author of Hebrews, knew even as God was giving these great and wonderful promises to him, the author of Hebrews says that Abraham knew that those promises were not for this present sin-cursed creation. Listen to what he says in Hebrews 11 about Abraham's hope. For he was looking for a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Is that a city that could be found anywhere in Canaan in 2000 BC? No, that wasn't Abraham's hope. Verse 16, but as it is they, that is the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city, not of this earth, a heavenly one. Indeed, we could could trace the promise of a new creation all the way back to the very first gospel promise which God gave to the man and the woman after the fall, the promise of a serpent-crushing seed of the woman who through his sufferings would destroy the works of the devil and remove the curse of sin. But what we do have in these last chapters of the Bible is by far the most detailed and theologically rich description of that biblical hope found anywhere in Scripture. What it does is to reach back all the way into Isaiah, all the way into Jeremiah, all the way into Ezekiel, all the way into the patriarchs, and all the way into the garden. And to tie up all of the previous promises into one glorious picture of consummation. There's a whole lot packed into that first verse of Revelation 21 just as there's a whole lot packed into that first verse of Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Seven words in the Hebrew explains a whole lot. Same thing is true in Revelation 21.1. Behold, I create a new heaven and a new earth. Three phrases that need to be unpacked in verse 1. The dissolution of the old creation, the birth of the new creation, and the absence of the sea. The dissolution of the old creation has been hinted at in three previous verses in Revelation. Back in Revelation 6, 12-14, we read this. When he opened up the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. 
The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then in Revelation 16 and 18, during the sixth bowl of wrath, or the seventh bowl of wrath rather, we read again about a great earthquake followed by this statement in verse 20, and every island fled away and no mountains were to be found. Then last week in Revelation 20 and verse 11, in that description of the final judgment, we read John who wrote, Then I saw a great white throne in him who was seated upon it, and from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. What is John trying to depict in these passages that can only be described as a, a dissolving? of the created order. Well, let me pull in one more apostle who described the same thing. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10, Peter said this, "The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. The earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed." Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to His promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. What all of these images mean, how it will look, how it will happen, how the world will actually come undone, is beyond our comprehension. Just as we don't know precisely what form the return of Christ will take. For instance, how will every eye on the globe see Him? Or just as we don't know how the final judgment will look. After earth and sky fled away from the throne, where will billions upon billions of people come and stand to be judged by God? What does that even look like? It's so far out of the realm of our experience and out of the realm of our finite ability to comprehend words. And yet we have these snapshots. When it comes to revelation, God doesn't give us visual details. He gives us theological truths. The word used three times by Peter in that passage to describe the event was the word dissolved. And that's about the best we can do. The old creation will die and will decay. It will be dissolved in much the same way that your physical bodies will die and decay and be dissolved. And as we'll see, there is a link between the resurrection of the body and the resurrection of creation. Now, this does not mean that there is no continuity between the old and the new creation. Don't get the idea that all that we see, all that we know will be just wiped away in an instant and then something totally new will be spoken into existence. I don't think that's what God has in mind. There will clearly be continuity between the new creation and this present creation 
Because there is continuity between the descriptions of the new creation in Revelation 21 and 22 and the descriptions of the Garden of Eden and the unfallen creation in Genesis 1 and 2. Your Bible is almost a mirror image, first two chapters to last two chapters. So there's continuity. The old creation was once new and was once good. In other words, there was nothing inherently wrong with what God called into being in the original creation. And therefore, I think we should expect the new creation to be somewhat similar to the first when the first was in its unfallen state. The new creation, the new heaven and the new earth will be a physical environment. There will be grass and trees and mountains and lakes and rivers and clouds. Everything that made the original creation good, in Genesis 1 and 2, will be in the new creation glorified, Revelation 21 and 22. According to G.K. Beale, Revelation or commentator on Revelation, he says this, the new heaven and the new earth will be, quote, the transformation of the old creation instead of an outright new creation, ex nihilo, or out of nothing. It should not be assumed, however, that a renewal means that there will be no literal destruction of the old cosmos, just as the renewed resurrection body does not necessitate the analogous notion with regard to the physical body, end quote. He then goes on to show that the new creation follows the pattern of Christ's own resurrection. In other words... The new creation of the new heaven and the new earth will not be a creation out of nothing like the first creation. Instead, there will be a death of this creation and then a resurrection and glorification just as in the case of Christ and just as in the case of all of the redeemed. We will die. Unless Christ comes first, our bodies will die, decay, dissolve in the ground, and on the day when Christ returns, we'll be called forth, renewed, regenerated, glorified. And the same thing will happen to this earth. Finally, what are we to make of John's statement that the sea was no more? I remember being a, a, a child and reading that verse and being vastly disappointed because I liked the sea. I've always thought of the sea as a beautiful part of God's creation, and standing beside the sea, especially at night, has, has always invoked within me a sense of awe and wonder at the power and the majesty of God. It's that sense of the numinous that you get when you stand before something that you have absolutely no ability to control. It makes you stand in awe and wonder before the God who said, to the waters, this far you shall come and no farther, and here your proud waves shall be stayed, Job 38, 11. So is there going to be no ocean in the new heaven and the new earth? Well, operating on the principle that nothing that is good, like the seas in the first creation, will be missing in the new creation, operating on the principle as... John Piper asserts it that we aren't going backwards in any holy pleasure. You're never, you're never going to have a moment in time in the new heaven and the new earth where you said, man, I wish I had that. That's not available to you here. Everything good here will be glorified there. 
I think we will experience eternally increasing God-centered pleasure and joy in the vast oceans that God has created. Besides, John does not say that there is no more sea. He says, the sea is no more as if he has a particular sea in mind. And I think he does. Context, I think, demands that this is the sea out of which the beast arose in Revelation 13.1. I think it's the many waters upon which the great prostitute of Babylon sits in 17.1, which were later identified symbolically as peoples and multitudes and nations and languages in 17.15. I think it's the sea of glass mingled with fire in the aftermath of the final battle and the defeat of the beast in chapter 15 and verse 2. See, in Revelation, the sea has a special connotation. It doesn't refer to all oceans everywhere on the planet. It refers to that symbol of the chaotic and tumultuous origin of demonic evil and of the the churning and tumultuous unbelieving nations who are inhabited and empowered by the powers of evil and the beast who rise up to cause tribulation against God's people. That's the way the image of the sea is used throughout Revelation. And so when John stands here and he is observing the new heaven and the new earth in the midst of a symbolic vision, in the midst of a symbolic book, and he says, and the sea was no more, I think he's referring to that sea. In other words... Such evil will have no place in the new creation. When John says to us, and there was no more sea, or the sea was no more rather, he's saying there are no more beasts. There is no more evil. There is no more death. You remember that the sea was the place of the dead out of which the Lord Jesus calls forth the bodies to stand before the throne of judgment in chapter 20 and verse 13. It's not going to be that kind of sea anymore because there's not going to be death in the new creation. So there's going to be a death, a resurrection, and a glorification of this created order. And that's what John sees in the new heavens and the new earth. But what that is actually going to look like is not made explicit. We are told that it will happen, but we are not told how it will happen. We are therefore left to our sanctified imaginations. And I know of no one who had a more sanctified imagination than C.S. Lewis. Lewis imagined this whole scene, by the way, and wrote it down in a book. In the last novel of his Chronicles of Narnia series, a book called The Last Battle, He imagined what the death and resurrection and glorification of the old creation into the new creation might look like. And I debated whether it would be helpful or harmful to read you a portion of his account, but I decided that it might be helpful to give you an idea of what it might look like so long as you promise to bear in mind that this is fiction and not Scripture. What I'm about to give you is simply Lewis's imagining of Revelation 21.1 taking place in the context of his fictional Narnian universe. At the conclusion of the last battle, the last battle of this whole epic that is the Chronicles of Narnia. Seriously, you need to read the book. Read it. 
Aslan, the great lion, the king of Narnia, who is the Christ figure in Lewis's stories, appears. And when he appears in the aftermath of this last battle, he creates a door in the old creation that enters into a new creation. And he stations himself at the left-hand side of the door. And he issues a command, and at his command, the stars begin to fall from the sky, and they gather together, and they glide past Aslan and through the door, and they station themselves through the doorway and over on his right-hand side so that they cast a very bright beam through his back and cast a great and terrible shadow outward to the left of the door. Can you picture it? Then... All of creation begins to come and stand before Aslan the lion. They stream from all over the globe as if summoned by some unspoken command. All of the strange and wonderful and terrible creatures that fill Lewis's fictional world and all men come from every land to appear before the lion. And time stands still as one by one they approach Aslan. Lewis writes this, he said, they all looked straight in his face. I don't think they had any choice about that. And when some looked, the expression on their faces changed terribly. It was fear and hatred. And all the creatures who looked at Aslan in that way swerved to their right, to his left, and disappeared into his huge black shadow which, as you have heard, streamed away to the left of the door. The children never saw them again. I don't know what became of them. But others looked in the face of Aslan and loved him, though some of them were very frightened at the same time. All these came in at the door, in on Aslan's right. And what happens next is fascinating. When all of creation has been thus judged by Aslan, some entering through the door, some departing into the darkness of his shadow, never to be seen again, then Lewis does what only Lewis can do in his novels. He says that dragons and giant lizards roam to and fro, eating all the earth's vegetation until all was bare rock and earth. And then these monsters themselves grew old and lay down and died, and their flesh shriveled up before our eyes until they were but skeletons lying on dead rock, looking as if they had died thousands of years ago. Then came a far-off murmur, then a rumble, then a roar, and a foaming wall of water surged toward the door. The sea was rising. All islands vanished beneath the rising waters. Lewis continues, And the high moors to the left and the higher mountains to the right crumbled and slipped down with a roar and a splash into the mounting water. The water came swirling up to the very threshold of the doorway, but never passed it, so that the foam splashed about Aslan's forefeet. All now was level water from where they stood to where the water met the sky. Then Lewis says the sun rose, but it looked somehow different. He says it was dying. It was three times, twenty times, as big as it ought to be, and very dark and red, and in the reflection of that sun, the whole waste of shoreless waters became like blood. 
Then the moon came up quite in her wrong position, very close to the sun, and she also looked red. And at the sight of her, the sun began shooting out great flames like whiskers or snakes of crimson fire toward her. It was as if he, the sun, were an octopus trying to draw her in to himself in his tentacles. And perhaps he did draw her. At any rate, she came to him slowly at first, but then more and more quickly, till at last his long flames licked round her and the two ran together and became one huge ball like burning coal. Great lumps of fire came dropping out of the sea and or dropping into the sea, and clouds of steam rose up. Then Aslan said, Now make an end. Then the giant, who is Father Time, stretched out one arm, very black it looked, and thousands of miles long across the sky till his hand reached the sun. And he took the sun and he squeezed it in his hand as you would squeeze an orange, and instantly there was total darkness. Everyone except Aslan jumped back from the ice-cold air which now blew through the doorway. Its edges were already covered with icicles. Peter, high king of Narnia, said Aslan, shut the door. Peter, shivering with cold, leaned out into the darkness and pulled the door to, and it scraped over the ice as he pulled it. Then, rather clumsily, for even in that moment his hands had gone numb and blue, he took out a golden key and he locked it. They had seen strange things enough through that doorway, but it was stranger than any of them to look round and find themselves in the warm daylight. The blue sky above them, the flowers at their feet, and laughter in Aslan's eyes. He turned swiftly around, crouched lower, lashed himself with his tail, and shot away like a golden arrow. Come further in, come further up, he shouted over his shoulder. Then the righteous of Narnia proceeded to follow Aslan further up and further in into the glorious warmth of this new Narnia in which everything good from the first Narnia was present in the new Narnia glorified. The sun was brighter. The trees were greener. The the air was fresher. The waterfalls bigger. The fruit sweeter. The joy greater. Lewis describes everything in the new Narnia as being more real than it was in the first Narnia. Suddenly they realized that everything they had known of the first creation was but a shadow and a copy of the real thing. He wrote, all of the old Narnia that mattered, all of the dear creatures have been drawn into the real Narnia through the door. And of course it is different. As different as the real thing is from the shadow or as waking life is from a dream. And then he ends his book and his entire epic with this statement. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Dare you to do better than that. He captures the joy and the surreal reality, the capital R, of the new creation. Anyway, enough with that. The new aspect, or the next aspect of the vision which John sees is the new Jerusalem. Verse 2. 
And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The new Jerusalem is going to be the subject of next week's message from verses 9 to 27. So I'm not going to spend much time in verse 2 today, but I just want to make one point, introduce it this week, and expound upon it next. And that point is that the new Jerusalem, at least in the context of John's vision, does not refer to an actual literal city. You're not looking at the blueprints of an actual city, or at least that's not the point. It's not the point of this text. I'm not saying there's not going to be cities in the new creation. I think there will be. I'm not saying there's not going to be a new Jerusalem which functions as the capital of the new creation. There very well might be. It's just that that's not what Revelation 21-2 is about. When he sees the new Jerusalem descending out of heaven to the earth, John is seeing something represented in that dissension. The new Jerusalem represents the presence of God in the midst of His glorified saints in the new creation. I'll give you four reasons that I come to that conclusion. We're going to walk through them very briskly. Number one, the very next verse, verse 3, indicates that that's the point of the imagery of the holy city coming down out of heaven. Verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. This is the Lord's own interpretation of what John is seeing. John sees the heavens open and the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, adorned as a bride for her husband. And the Lord says, here's what you're seeing. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and he shall be their God. In other words, what it means is I'm going to dwell with you. I'm going to dwell with my bride, with my glorified church. That's reason number one. Reason number two. In the Old Testament text on which this text is based, Isaiah 52 and 62, Jerusalem, the holy city, clearly refers to the people who dwell there and not to the city itself. It refers to the people of Zion, not to the city of Zion. Both of those chapters, Isaiah 51 and 60, 52 and 62, make astounding promises of salvation to the faithful people of God, whom God refers to over and over in their, those chapters as Zion or Jerusalem. Promises that now have come to fulfillment in Revelation 21 and 22 and are granted to the church. In other words, I think the language is being used both in the Old Testament and here in much the same way. When I was in high school and we were going to go on a road trip with our basketball team, someone would ask me, who are you playing tonight? And I'd say, well, we're playing Joplin tonight. I didn't mean that we were going to play the whole city I meant that there's a people there, namely a high school basketball team, and we're going to go play them. I referred to the people by the name of the place. And I think the same thing's going on here. He sees Jerusalem coming down. What he sees is not a city. What he sees is a church. He sees a people. Number three, the New Testament already makes a distinction between the earthly Jerusalem and the heavenly Jerusalem, and neither one of them refer to literal cities. In Galatians 4, Paul contrasts the present Jerusalem, which 
symbolizes unbelieving peoples who are in bondage to the law, namely unbelieving Jews, and he contrasts them with the Jerusalem that is above, which represents the children of the promise who are born of the Spirit and are free. It represents believers. Jerusalem below represents a people, unbelieving Jews. Jerusalem above represents a people, children of the promise. Hebrews 12, the author tells the church to which he writes, You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Clearly, the author's not referring to a literal city because he's speaking to people who are living, probably in Rome, and he says, you've come to Mount Zion. It's a spiritual fellowship that he's talking about. It's a spiritual citizenship that he's talking about. So when John sees the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, it represents the presence of God and of Christ in the midst of his saints, no longer spiritually but now physically upon a new and glorified earth, God will dwell in our midst. We talk about that right now, right? Where two or three are gathered in His name, there He is. But we don't mean He's physically here. We mean He's here by the presence and power of His Spirit. But when we get to the new heaven and the new earth, when we say God is in our midst, we'll mean what we say. Fourth, and most convincing, is the language of the bride. John says that the holy city, the new Jerusalem, came down out of heaven prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Look down at verse 9. Same thing happens. The angel tells John, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And then he takes them to a high mountain and he shows them a city. The holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. In other words, verses 9 and 10 and verse 2 equate the bride with the city. Well, here's a question for you. What's the bride? It's the church. It's us. We are the bride of Christ prepared for our husband prepared by the robes of righteousness which He has given us, which we have washed white in the blood of the Lamb. The bride is not a literal city. It is a people. It is a church. The redeemed saints of God. And John sees them now in symbolic form as a glorified city clothed in splendor, bright and pure, prepared as a bride for her husband. And so next week when we look at all of the descriptions of the new Jerusalem, I'll just tell you ahead of time, I'm going to apply them all to the church. I think that they are all symbolic descriptions of things that will be true of the glorified church in the new creation. Because I think that's what verses 9 and 10 and verse 2 are telling me to do. Come, I'll show you the bride. Look at that city. Next, John hears a declaration from the throne of God. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God and He will wipe every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And He said to me, It is done. 
I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. It's done. What is done, we may ask? Everything would come the reply. Everything that was ever promised is now accomplished. All of the promises which are yes and amen in Christ are now brought to fulfillment and consummation. What Christ finished at the cross when He declared it is finished is now seen to be finished in the consummation of the new creation. All of the promises of the covenant of grace down throughout the ages. The promises to Adam and Eve. The promise to Noah. The promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. To Samuel and David. To Moses and Joshua. To Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and all of the prophets. All of the promises ever given by God to His people rested upon the saving work of Jesus Christ in His life, death, and resurrection. The blood and the righteousness of Christ inaugurated a new covenant between God and His redeemed people. But... Throughout this age, between the accomplishment of that new covenant and the consummation of the new covenant, this age which we've identified as the millennium, this age which we have identified as the age of missions, this age when people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation are being gathered into this soon-to-be-glorified church, in this age, suffering and tribulation and mourning and crying and pain and death reign... And the promises must await their consummation at His return. But, in Revelation 21, Christ has returned, and all that He died to secure for His people has now come. And so He says it is done. The Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, has finished His great redemptive masterpiece. The great composer has put down His pencil. The great conductor has put down His baton. And the symphony is finished. It is done. It is perfect. All things, all things are new. And the centerpiece of this new covenant consummation is God Himself. God is the goal of all the redemptive work of Christ. It's the goal of the Gospel. He is the goal of the Gospel. The promise to Adam of the serpent crusher finds its fulfillment in this. The destruction of Satan and all his works is not the end of God's promise. The end of that promise is that Adam and Eve may, may come again, once again, into the presence of God, into Eden, and walk with their God once again in the cool of the day. The promises to Abraham of a place always found their fulfillment in this all of his promises centered around this statement. I will be their God and they will be my people. Fellowship with the living God has been the goal of the covenant all the way down throughout time. And that's what Christ died to secure. 1 Peter 3.18 Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. The heart of the new covenant gospel is reconciliation with your Creator and God through the death of His Son. And when you get to Revelation 21.1, that's exactly what you have. And so the Lord Jesus looks upon His accomplishment with satisfaction and He says, it's done. It is the death of Christ which removes the curse for all His redeemed. 
such that there will no longer be in any tears or death or mourning or crying or pain, but a new creation with no tears, no death, no mourning, no crying, no pain would be empty did we not also receive God and fellowship with Him. That's the promise of the new covenant. Everything else that is offered to us freely, the forgiveness of sins, a new heart, the indwelling Spirit, all of the new covenant blessings serve and point to that one glorious end. God redeemed you through Christ that He might bring you to Himself, that you might glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. He will say to you on that last day, on this day, the same thing that He promised to Abraham. Abraham, I am your very great reward. Finally, John hears the voice of Him who sits on the throne issue an invitation and a warning. A call echoing back from all of eternity, back through time and history coming to us today. This is that moment in the sermon when God Himself addresses you and me. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. I said we were done with the doom and the gloom and the fire and the sulfur, but I've got to finish here. Because God saw fit to bring it up one more time, didn't He? Not everyone will inherit the new heaven and the new earth. Not everyone will have God as His Father and not everyone will be His Son. The Lord is very, very clear about who is to inherit all of these things. And He gives us three descriptions. He says the one who thirsts will inherit God and all that He is for us in Christ. The one who has felt deep within his soul his utter bankruptcy, his utter depravity, the absolute hopelessness of life apart from his Creator and God. The one who has heard in the Gospel the call of Christ. If anyone thirsts, Let him come to me and drink. And as the scripture says, out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And he has heard. In those words, a call issued to him. And he believes. And he calls out to Jesus. And he cries out to his Savior. I thirst. Give me a drink. Forgive me of my sins. Give me new life. Satisfy me with your grace and your mercy. That is the one who will inherit the new heavens and the new earth. Lots of people here come to me, all who thirst, and I will give you to drink of the waters of life. Not many have said, I thirst. Give me that drink. Satisfy me. Cleanse me. Forgive me. That's what he means when he says to the one who thirsts, I will give without payment. It's free. It's 
free, free and unmerited grace. This is a promise from the Lord of creation and from Jesus Christ, his son, to you and to me this morning. If you thirst, you may come and drink and live in ever-increasing joy forever in the presence of your God and Creator. But there is more. It's not the only description he gives. To the one who thirsts, but also to the one who conquers, the inheritance belongs. This is perseverance and faith through all of the sufferings and all of the tribulations of this age. To the one who conquers, persevering in faith through all of the mourning and the crying and the pain and the death of this age, that's the one that God will wipe every tear from his eyes. To the one who conquers sin and Satan, Babylon and the beast, God will grant the joy of everlasting fellowship with himself. This entire book of Revelation was written for your perseverance and faith to help you conquer by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of your testimony and to lead you to love Jesus more than you love your own life. And this passage says that it's actually those who do that who will inherit the new heaven and the new earth. God is so clear that only those who conquer, who overcome, who persevere, will have this heritage in which the Lord is not ashamed to say, I will be His God and He will be my Son. So, all of this is given to the one who thirsts, to the one who conquers, and finally to the one who is sanctified. Listen to me, beloved. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. No matter what they profess, no matter whether they've been baptized, and no matter whether they're on the membership rolls of this church. The unrighteous will not inherit the new heaven and the new earth. Look at verse 8 with me. The cowardly. You know who that is? That's the one who won't confess Christ under the threat of persecution, but rather chooses to save their own life rather than lose it. Jesus isn't going to confess him before his Father. And so he will not inherit the new heaven and the new earth. The faithless, those who in the end prove, either by their confession or by their life, that they don't actually believe the gospel because they gave in to the beast and they succumbed to the wiles of Babylon. They're not going to inherit the new heaven and the new earth. The detestable, your version may say abominable. Those who drank from the golden cup of Babylon's abominations. Those who indulged in all of the seductions and all of the sins and all of the iniquities of Babylon in this life. They will not inherit Zion in the new heaven and the new earth. The murderers. Those who participate with the beast in the slaughter of the saints, perhaps by ratting them out to save their own necks, they will not inherit the new heaven and the new earth. The sexually immoral, those who embrace Babylon's perverse sexual ethic and reject God's sacred design for sexuality and marriage, they will not inherit the new heaven and the new earth. 
the sorcerers and the idolaters, those who become enchanted with the beast's dark power and they bow down to worship his image, will not inherit the new heaven and the new earth and no liar Those who pervert the truth of God and lead others astray, just like some were doing in the churches of Revelation, they will not inherit the new heaven or the new earth. On the contrary, all of these will inherit the lake of fire that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Be not deceived. Another way of saying it is that only those who are new creations now will enter the new creation then. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So only those who are new creations in Christ, those in whom the old unbelief and the old unrighteousness have passed away and the new faith and the new righteousness have come, are fit to enter into the new creation in which the former things have passed away and God has made all things new. So ask yourself this morning, am I a new creation? Are my affections and desires stretching out towards Zion and the new heaven and the new earth and everlasting fellowship with God such that I consider myself a stranger and an alien and a pilgrim in this foreign Babylon? Or are my affections so rooted here that I'm in no hurry to get there. The first will inherit everything God has for us in Christ. The second, lake of fire. It's an important question. It's why we care about righteousness here. It's not because we're legalists. It's not because we think we're perfect. It's because there's such a danger in not concerning yourself with righteousness. You've got to be sanctified to get in. Beloved, you need not suffer the second death. If you're ensnared in sin, if if one of those eight descriptions describes you, you're in the age of grace. If you thirst, you can drink. If you confess, you can be forgiven. If you call out, He'll answer. So come and drink freely from the fountain of His grace and live forever.